Nexus PMG welcomes you to the Bigger Than Us podcast, which we as energy geeks lovingly refer to as the BTU. Bigger Than Us is a podcast that focuses on ideas that will shape the future of our planet and ultimately our existence. We will occasionally lean into energy topics because after all, it's the key to our collective survival, but we'll also explore other ideas and topics that we believe will have an impact that is bigger than us. And now, on to today's show. Hello and welcome to the Bigger Than Us podcast. I'm your host, Raj Daniels, and today I'd like to welcome Josh Dorfman to the show. Josh Dorfman is a sustainability entrepreneur and brand builder dedicated to scaling mission-driven ventures. He is co-founder and CEO of Planted, a carbon-negative building materials company pioneering a new pop to reach gigaton-scale carbon capture. Josh, how are you doing today? I'm doing fantastic, Raj. Thank you so much for having me on. Josh, I'm excited to dig into your story, and I'd like to kick off with this question. When did you first realize that you were an environmentalist? Mm, when I first realized I was an environmentalist, well, I can tell you when my environmental epiphany just hit me uh, really right over the head. I was in China in the mid-90s, traveling around the country, helping a, a company called Kryptonite, uh, a bicycle lock company, set up distribution and sales. And uh, it was there for a whole number of reasons, but mostly because there were a billion people riding bicycles. And we had the best bicycle lock in the world. And as um, a kid in my mid-20s, I thought I'd be probably retired by my late 20s. Um, <laughs> and uh, it was you know, an incredibly uh, powerful and profound experience for me on, on many levels to, you know, to live in China for a couple of years and really be integrated into the, the culture and community. But what ended up happening for me was we had opened a third factory for kryptonite. This one was in southern China, just outside of uh, Guangzhou. And as we were traveling to this restaurant to commensurate this deal and celebrate uh, both sides, so with the, the partner on the Chinese side that we were working with, I was in his Mercedes and we got to this um, uh, restaurant that specialized in snake. It was going to be this wonderful meal that actually was a pretty good meal. But well, before we went into the restaurant, we were in the parking lot and we got out of, of his Mercedes and he said to me, Josh, look. My Mercedes is the biggest Mercedes in the parking lot. His chest swelled up with pride and I had been there for two years and I thought, right, here we are in communist China, circa 1996, 1997, but you want what we want, more, bigger. And I just thought, you know, I'd seen the pace of uh, infrastructure development, highways, bridges, tunnels, all of this, this infrastructure coming for an automobile economy. And in that moment, I thought, right, there's actually going to be a billion car drivers in this country, probably in the not too distant future. People don't really want bicycles. They want cars. I don't know anything about global warming. This, you know, wasn't raised as an environmentalist, but in that moment, I felt like I saw the future and realized that um, how we develop economically in order to live well and sustain our quality of life while bringing our economies um, and our lifestyles into balance with nature would be something that would become a theme throughout my life. So there you go. That was the moment I suppose I became an environmentalist. Well, then let's fast forward. And can you share the story of when you realized you were a lazy environmentalist? 
Uh, well, Raj, yeah, you've done your you've done your homework. Yes, I, I can. Um, so a few years later, as I was thinking about, you know, I, I well, I came back to the states. I, I got an MBA, went through the dot com first dot com bubble crash around two thousand. Um, but I just couldn't shake this feeling that. I'd seen the future when I was in China and I kept thinking, well, what am I, what am I going to do with this knowledge? How to, if I can't just, you know, forget about it, I have to do something. And so my thought was to, uh, approach, you know, living in the States was to make, be part of the change to make consumerism more sustainable. So I started a modern design, sustainable furniture company back in 2003. And my first employee in that business, I started it in Washington, DC. Um, after about a year and a half, she was not going to move with the business up to Brooklyn, where I was moving the company, because a lot of the best sustainable design at the time was was happening in Brooklyn. And so we made a deal that on our last day working together, if she would help me pack up the van we took to trade shows and um, drive with me up to Brooklyn, uh, I would give her the the van as a parting gift, and this would be our our last day working together. And so. We were on the New Jersey Turnpike. It was about 10 o'clock at night. It had been a long day. We are both a little stressed out. Um, Lucy was in the passenger seat and started seemingly to kind of hyperventilate. I didn't know what was wrong with her, but she was just <laughs> sort of going like, <gasps> like this really you know, heavy breathing. And I was like, Lucy, are you okay? And she finally said, look, Josh, you know, I have to ask you something. I have to get this off my chest. I couldn't ask you when you were my boss, but as of today, you're not my boss anymore. And there's something I really need to. And so, um, you know, we were all a little bit younger back then. And so I also immediately thought to myself, like, holy cow, she's attracted to me. <laughs> she couldn't tell me, of course, when I was her boss, but you know, I'm not her boss. This is crazy. And I was subletting a, a room in an apartment uh, in, in, in Brooklyn and Greenpoint, I, I'd seen it once. I didn't know the, I was, so I was just thinking, what are the logistics? I know there's a roommate. How's this going to work? How's this night going to go? And so I finally calmed myself down. I was like, look, Lucy, let's talk about it. You know, you can tell me anything, you know, whatever's on your mind. And, um, and so she said to me, she's like, all right, look, I don't want you to take this the wrong way, but are you really an environmentalist? You know, you're always in the shower. You barely recycle. You're going to throw your bed out. I took it to the homeless shelter. Like you don't act like an environmentalist. You're like you're a total hypocrite. You're like the basically like the worst person I've ever met. And like I hate you. <laughs> so um, very little attraction. Uh, Lucy slept on the on the couch that night and left with the van the next morning. And and I was left to ponder what she said, which really hit home because it was all true. And so I wrote a blog. Uh, entry I was blogging a lot. This you know goes back to around 2004. Called the lazy environments about myself, and the short of it was I said, look, I care about the planet, but I am lazy. I am set in my ways. I need things to be convenient in my life. I need an awesome low flow shower head because I love taking long showers. I know I use a lot of water and energy um, in that shower, so give me a really awesome low flow shower head, and and that reduces my impact for me, and I will get it. I want an Audi TT convertible. I don't care if it's hydrogen or biodiesel or electric or whatever. If like, if there's an eco version and it fits my lifestyle and what I want, I will get the eco version, but I'm probably not going out of my way as much as like that makes me a terrible person, maybe, um, to, to do what's best for the planet. Uh, you know, if you can make the choices, you industry, make them easy, make them convenient, stylish, affordable, whatever I need, I'll go green. Right. I'll, but so here's the thing. I care. Uh, I'm, but I'm lazy. I'm a lazy environmentalist. And I think there's millions of people who feel the same way. And it turned out there was at least a, a radio producer who felt the same way because there was a guy who was reading my blog and called me up for a little internet radio show and said, Hey, this is an interesting idea. 
let's turn this into a radio show. What would you do? And I said, well, I'd love to do that. I have, you know, I don't have a very big marketing budget for my furniture company. So uh, any media sounds great. But I said to him, look, I'll start bringing on innovators and designers and the folks who I know who are who I think are at the forefront forefront of this new sustainable sustainability movement that really is making this more palatable and appealing to consumers to lead more sustainable lifestyles. And so that's what I started to do. And, you know, and then it went to Sirius XM from there and became a reality TV show not too long after that. And uh, it was a really good run. So Lucy's fake advances landed you on the Martha Stewart show. Exactly. That's exactly right. I have her to thank. She, I, I found out later because she heard me, um, somehow we reconnected and, and she was listening to an interview I'd done at some point and, and she was like, oh my God, I didn't know any of that. She had gone off to like live in an ashram in West Virginia or something. You know, she was very committed to the cause, um, which I admire. Uh, but uh, yeah, Lucy's, I have Lucy to thank. So if my research served me right, this is circa late 2000s. Today, it's, you know, we're in February of 2023. Where do you think we are on the journey of lazy environmentalists? Mm. Yeah, that's a really good question. I, I think that in some respects, we are in a very different moment than we were 15 years ago. And I am hopeful that, you know, really positive transformative change is coming. Maybe it's already here. The, the reason why I would say coming, I think, is because if you look around and still how we, we live our lives today, uh, you know, there's people driving Teslas, not a lot, you know, like percentage-wise of, of, of all automobile drivers. There's more EV cars coming. There's more choice coming. A lot more people have solar panels on their homes. But generally speaking, you know, we are, as a culture, we're not living sustainable lifestyles. These types of products are, you know, they don't have mass penetration, mass adoption by the market, you know, by, by consumers, by citizens yet in the, in the U.S. Some countries are, are further along. So I think there's some progress that's been made and some wonderful companies that have emerged, companies like Allbirds um, that are really interesting for footwear. But overall, I, I don't, you know, it's hard to say, oh, yeah, transformation has occurred. But what I think is really different, and, you know, this certainly goes to planted, and I know we'll talk about what we're doing, carbon negative materials. What I am seeing that I think is a real fundamental shift is that you sort of have this really interesting dichotomy in markets today, where on the one hand, you have the niche players, you can look at any in in industry, whether it's, um, you know, sustainable fashion, or in our case, home building. And we'll talk about home building where you know, you've had green builders uh, for a long time who have built energy efficient homes, who have searched for more eco-friendly and sustainable materials, um, have really thought about how do you, you know, diminish the amount of energy that a home uses? Um, how do you re really reduce the, the embodied carbon or just the overall footprint of the home? That's, that's been going on um, in a concerted way, I would argue, probably for certainly for over 20 years, you know, with, with, with really good home builders, quality home builders, you know, with intention to design and aesthetic, et cetera. What you have today, though, that's different is you have the largest companies, the publicly traded companies who are changing how they operate at a very fundamental, fundamental level because their seed level, you know, their, their C-suites are getting pressured from you know, investors in the public markets to really change how they operate. And the pressure is getting to a place where a CFO or a COO is hearing, hey, if you don't change, like the, the conversation really goes like, we know you have risk in your business. 
we're investors that you either don't know or you're not disclosing to us and relating to climate change. So we want to see what you're doing and we want to understand that in your plans. Otherwise, you know, the composition of your board might be called into question and some uncomfortable things, you know, might happen. And so we're seeing interest in something like Planted and something like our materials from the largest players in the industry uh, in a very real way in response to, to that pressure. And that's different than anything I've encountered. You know, I appreciate that. And we might step over the boundary of what's considered politically correct here as we wax and wane philosophically. But, you know, you mentioned corporations, and I really feel like that's where the difference has to be made. You've been in design. You may have heard the acronym Maya, most advanced yet acceptable. Hmm, okay. And I feel like, you know, you mentioned Allbirds, you mentioned Tesla, and you know, all birds are, let's just call it $100 plus. Tesla, as we know, are forty, fifty, sixty thousand dollars $60,000 and higher. And so it, both those, both those items address a very small segment of the market. And if you draw the bell curve, they're on either end of the long tail. But I think the general public on this journey to become an environmentalist, I think that burden that was perhaps foisted on them 10, 15, 20 years ago needs to shift to the corporate model because... If you talk to the average person that's perhaps, you know, trying to get by, make ends meet, family issues, et cetera, et cetera, I think the last thing on their agenda is sustainability. You know, I, I agree with you. I think that maybe, maybe that's, you know, maybe we're saying we would say the same thing. Sustainability is on the agenda, but I always think that sustainability, it kind of goes back to this sort of lazy environmentalism, so to speak. Like in my mind, you know, all things being equal, yeah, everyone. It doesn't matter where you are on kind of the political you know, spectrum. Everyone would like to, you know, live a more sustainable lifestyle, reduce their footprint. I mean, whether that's to save money by reducing your footprint, right, or just to align more with your values about the planet and things you care about. But, you know, I think that it's, it's not a question of do you care. It's a question of like, can you afford it, right? And affordability goes a lot to convenience. And, and so I, I really agree. I think that um, that's why I say, I think that there's been some fabulous innovation and some incredible companies built, but not in a way where it's really driving systemic change throughout our society and economy yet. And you mentioned, you know, some of the SEC guidelines that came out last April, looking for comments, et cetera, and when they become regulation, I think implementing carrots and sticks is going to help us move in that direction. You know, I think you're right, Raj. I don't, I, I tend not to my sort of thoughts and, and where I sp like invest most of my, you know, kind of, uh, sort of ref time for reflection is not really on that conversation. Uh, it's probably just because, you know, we're just, I'm an operator, right. Especially right now trying to build this company. But so what I see is transactional is probably the wrong word, but what I really do see kind of across industries, whether you're looking at, you know, things that impact the built environment, whether you're looking at home builders, uh, or commercial, uh, construction companies or flooring companies or contract furniture manufacturers, if they're public and, you know, they've most likely stated and asserted what their goals are and put a 2030 timeframe on it, which is right around the corner. And for a lot of these companies, they've, they've made specific pledges around how they source, how they procure, what materials they go after and thinking about, you know, those other emissions, scope three emissions or however you want to you know, bracket it. And that's driving real change inside these huge companies in terms of, um, you know, 
the the vendors they choose, you know, the types of materials they switch to. I mean, things that like like for so for a company like Planted, I honestly don't think we could have existed even five years ago because I just don't think the interest would have been there in the at the scale we need to really you know build this type of business from the ground up. And since we're on Planted, can you give us an overview how you came up with the idea and your role at the organization? Yeah, so I'm the the co-founder and CEO. So um, in many respects, what that means is that that I'm I drive the the kind of the business commercialization side of of, of the company. Uh, it's a company I co-founded with two former engineers from from SpaceX, and you know we came together to say what would be the fastest way to take carbon out of the atmosphere uh, and lock it away and build a business around it that doesn't rely on carbon credits, right? Or, uh, and, and I'll just leave it at, at that on the carbon credit conversation for the moment. But, but how could we build a profitable business doing that? And so, you know, coming out of the furniture industry, working with materials like plywoods, you know, trying to always source like FSC certified versions, but nonetheless working with panels and, you know, different types of, of yeah, lots of different types of, of panel type products, my thought went to, well, could we do something to replace trees with an alternative biomass? And the guys from SpaceX, for a whole host of reasons, were thinking about um, carbon capture and rebalancing the, the amount of carbon in our atmosphere. Um, so we put these ideas together and said, great, let's go identify a biomass that grows really fast, that could lock away a, a lot of carbon through photosynthesis. Um, and with a SpaceX team, we know we can develop an entirely new production capability to change what a mill looks like, right? Like to change how engineered building materials get constructed um, and probably solve some, some problems for builders along the way. And if we can do that and create materials and create products that really delight customers, delight builders, um, you know, we think we could build a, a, a real business and a viable business uh, because builders will love working with our products, not because they're carbon negative and have all these great characteristics around sustainability, but because they're going to make their lives better and easier on a job site. And so that fundamentally is, is what we've set out to do and uh, what Planted is all about. So you mentioned what a mill looks like. Can you give the audience an idea of what kind of mill you're referring to? <laughs> Absolutely. So yeah, when I say mill, I mean giant factory. I imagine something the size of uh, a small town, just a huge, huge footprint, a massive building with with smokestacks uh, coming out the top of it, where trees, right, lumber is being cut down, delivered to that that facility, and then through a production line that is probably the size of you know a football, at least a football field, right, maybe longer. You're taking all of these trees and eventually turning them into things like plywood or, you know, panels that have structural integrity to them so that when you build a house, you're nailing these panels to the two by fours, right? That's, and that's how you actually build the frame of a house. So there are some of the biggest manufacturers uh, in the world, in North America, you know, are in, are in these types of industries. And, you know, one of the things from a carbon perspective that we see is problematic is, you know, people say, well, what's wrong with trees? I mean, trees are growing, they're capturing carbon. And we would say, yeah, that's true. They do take a really long time to grow. Um, so it takes a really long time to, it's not a very efficient way on the land to actually capture carbon. But when you actually get to the mill or the factory, what ends up happening at that factory is that trees are so porous that when they get to that factory, they're, you know, 
a lot of that tree is actually water, right? There's the, they're just storing a lot. So they have to be dried out before they can be actually be turned into an engineered material you'd build a, a house out of. And to do that, what the reason why you have these smokestacks is because these companies will take that tree and 25% of it gets burned, right? Goes up a smokestack in a furnace to dry out the other 75%. You need a lot of natural gas in that process too. Um, so it's basically a process where you're, you're, the emissions you know, are going right back. The carbon you've, you've, you've retained in the tree while it's in the, in the forest is going right back into the atmosphere. Um, so certainly not carbon efficient, right? It's definitely not, it's not energy efficient. It's not carbon efficient. We've just, just changed the factory, right? So we've said, well, fundamentally, we need to design a factory that has no smokestacks. That's 100% electric that fits into where the world needs to go in the 21st century. There's other innovations too, but that is a core innovation where we've said, you know, we're going to change, completely change the energy mix. And by doing that, it also means we can put this factory in places where those factories simply can't be. We, you know, we can put this factory in, a, in the middle of a city. We can put this factory next to a, a residential housing development and just be essentially printing. So it's a much smaller, what we're designing is much smaller, much smaller footprint, about four feet wide, 140 feet long. You know, put it next to a residential development and just print panels right there, right? So take the supply, remove the supply chain, remove that cost, remove those carbon emissions, really do something transformative. And that's what we believe is absolutely necessary in the 21st century, given how much more building we're going to need to do, uh, you know, for our, you know, an expanding population, differing needs. I mean, everyone knows, I think it's that it's the, the quotes credited to, I want to say Bill Gates, maybe not, but that we're basically building the equivalent of a New York City every two weeks, kind of from now well into the future. Um, to do that, we think you need not only a new input, not a tree, an alternative, uh, a different type of biomass, but you fundamentally need a new production capability that aligns with solving climate change um, and having the, the flexibility to produce uh, you know, for the needs of, of this century, not last century. Where are you in the process of building your factory? So for us, I mean, we are a startup. We just raised our, our Series A funding round. So we, we raised, in, it's a, it was a $10 million round with, you know, we have a very large customer uh, in the home building industry who also put some money in that round. So, it's, so we have some more cash in the bank. Um, we've, at the moment, as I'm talking to you, we have built two by four panels off of our own machines that are certified. Um, certified initially to, to be built for roofs. And so we built a hundred kind of as the final demonstration of our prototype technology. Um, those, those hundred panels will go onto a model home um, a little bit later this winter. But right now what we are doing is we are building that first commercial scale production line that I just described to you. And Congratulations. Thank you. Now, can you go into more detail regarding the feedstock or the input? To a degree. Some of that is, is proprietary. We've spent a lot of time on R&D looking at different potential biomass that would work for um, our use case. So we've looked at industrial hemp. We've looked at bamboo. We've looked at some waste streams. Um, through that research, we have hit upon uh, a perennial grass. So uh, kind of akin to bamboo in that it, it grows on its own every year, comes up on its, on its own. Um, Unlike bamboo, you know, bamboo has roots that run under the ground, right? So that creates a problematic situation for farmers. It's hard to build a supply chain here in the U.S. There's, there's a lot of issues with it. 
Um, and there's no mechanical harvesting equipment for something like bamboo. You can't, it's not very easy to chop it down once it's grown, which is why a lot of that harvesting, growing and harvesting takes place in Asia. We've identified a perennial grass. So it comes up on its own every year, but with a different dimension so that we can use standardized mechanical harvesting equipment, uh, and therefore it gives us an opportunity to stand up a supply chain, uh, in the, in the U S and do that in a way that is cost effective. And again, without giving away the name, so I'll just go into some detail here. Back in 2019, we as a company were invited to participate in a project in Arkansas using a perennial grass called Muscanthus. And our the model for this particular plant was to take it, put it through a thermoforming process and create, think like uh, compostable, biodegradable chipotle bowls and um, you know drink trays, etc. So just to give an audience an idea, you talk about perennial grass. I don't want people to be imagining, you know, something that's three or four inches high. Can you give us like a description? Yeah, absolutely. So we looked at giant canthus grass as well. So I'm familiar with what you're talking about. But yeah, this is a grass that will grow uh, upwards of, of 20 feet um, with a diameter that can look like sugarcane. Um, and that's what enables us to, you know, to bring a more mechanical approach to how we, we not just plant it, but harvest it. So it grows very tall, very dense, uh, and that's what you know. We're able to drive yields off an acre that can be, you know, the, the upward bound isn't even really known, but where we know we can get eight to nine, potentially ten times more biomass off an acre per year than you can, for example, with a monoculture tree farm or managed timberland that feeds the, you know, the tree-based products that are that are widely you know, that that basically dominate the industry today. Um, so it's very land efficient, massive yields. Um, it's you know, really fascinating. And so therefore for us, because the yields are so strong, it makes the economics work, meaning we can pay a farmer well on a per ton basis you know, per acre, um, where the, a farmer can be incentivized to say, especially here in North Carolina, where we're starting, um, well, I don't really want to grow tobacco anymore. There's a lot of that here in North Carolina, right? But because that's a a declining market, I, you know, for whatever reasons, I may no longer want to be in that industry. And there's a whole host of reasons, obviously, um, where this gives them a similar sort of financial upside, but the the inputs, uh, the cost inputs to actually put this in and plant it and harvest it are so much lower um, where farmers are really excited about what we're doing. So it works for them. And it also works for our economics where we can still compete very effectively uh, with. And I think I read somewhere multiple yields per year, multiple growing seasons per year? Potentially. I mean, there's still, there's still a lot to learn, um, but there's, there's the potential uh, for that w- w- with this plant. So on your journey, let's go from becoming the lazy environmentalists through Martha Stewart. Actually, I have a segue question on the Martha Stewart piece. The robotic lawnmower, is it still in service? Gosh, I hope so. The, it's it's kind of like a, a Roomba, right? But it was a Roomba for your lawn. That had solar power powers, yeah, solar panels attached to the base, so it could just come out, cut your lawn, and go back into its docking station. I don't know, but I will tell you that she did keep the one that was. She did because she she, she did. seemed very excited to take that one and put it in her on her lawn. <laughs> yeah, she was very excited about <laughs> it. Uh, she was she was quite lovely actually. She made it very easy for me uh, to you know to be on her show, which was pretty nerve wracking otherwise. But yeah, and- I think she. I think she did keep it. You had another item on there. It was um, disposable diaper insides. 
And at that time, you didn't have children. I believe you have three children now. Is that correct? That is correct. Yes. Did you end up using that product? We tried it. We tried it. But my wife also is very, very sustainably oriented and, and not lazy either. So, <laughs> but, but what she actually did with our kids, which is pretty incredible, was something called elimination communication, which is, you know, you get attuned to the signals of your child. Most people don't believe this is even possible, but you get no, attuned that, to this. That requires the patience of Job. Yes, which, yes, exactly. And so in some respects, you're describing, you know, that aspect of my wife. So our kids, by the time, you know, very young, at like six months old, they were not in diapers anymore. Um, and like, we'd take them to the doctor and like nurse, nurses would be like, where's the diaper? And then my wife would try and explain, well, we do this thing, elimination communication. We understand when they need to go to the bathroom. Like, well, that's, that's impossible. But, <laughs> you know, so we actually avoided a lot of uh, diapers for the most part. But in, in fairness, I, I think at one point, um, I did have to own up to the fact that there, there were still a fair amount of pampers uh, <laughs> used in our family um, in, inescapably. It's totally just, understandable. Yes. So fast forward to now from your journey back in the 2000s to Planted, what's the most valuable lesson you've learned about yourself? Hmm. Well, I would say the most, uh, so here's what, here's what comes to mind, Raj. Um, I think the most valuable lesson I've learned is, and, and I think how I've changed the most um, as I've, you know, now kind of 20 years into this career working on sustainable ventures, I'm, I am much more inclined today to ask for help and advice than I have ever been in my career. Um, and so I guess you could say I, I'd always known about myself. And I, I think sometimes this goes with, you know, with entrepreneurship or people who are creative to different endeavors. You don't really want to ask for help. You want to just figure it out yourself. Sometimes you just feel like that's part of the discovery journey. But with this venture, I think one, we're just moving so fast. And two, we're also doing so many things to innovate along an entire value chain that it's just become readily clear to me that I don't have the, all, all the answers. And I think to be the, the type of effective leader I want to be and hope to be, you know, I have to solicit advice from, from lots of other people who have you know, deep expertise in areas that are important to us. And so I've learned that that's, I've known that that's not my kind of sort of innate disposition to be that way, but I've changed. Um, and I'm really glad that, that I made that change. You mentioned asking for help. When was the last time you asked for help? Well, the, all right, let's see specifically the last time. I think, you know, we just went through this series A fundraise. Fundraising is uh, a challenging thing at almost any time for a startup to do. We were doing it in the fall of 2022, which I think was a particularly tenuous time to be out in the markets talking to venture capital funds. Um, There's a lot of uncertainty in the markets. A lot of venture capital funds um, were, you know, certainly wasn't the go-go days of a year or two earlier during the pandemic. Um, and so I was continually throughout that process talking with some of our early investors who I lean on for advice, uh, some other founders of other companies that I, uh, who I lean on for advice, just to make sure that we were navigating uh, thoughtfully. Uh, and, and by thoughtfully, I mean, you know, serving the best interests of Planted, but also 
being um, kind of attuned to the moment and where like where investors were maybe in their sort of general process, right? Like um, so that we could, you know, never mind like how they might feel about planted, but other kind of other issues at play within, you know, within funds or within investors so that we could really come to the right meeting of minds, right? Really get to an agreement um, as, as quickly as possible. And so I, that's probably a very theoretical answer, but I definitely was talking to, you know, a number of people that I rely on um, who have more experience in, in that regard um, than I have. No, I really appreciate that. And you're right. The winds have changed between 2020 and Q3, Q4 of 2022. We have startup founders that listen to this show. We have investors listen to this show. What would you say were maybe one or two questions that perhaps investors asked in late 2022 that they weren't asking earlier? Hmm. Well, I can tell you what our experience was. I mean, just, well, certainly, you know, we raised a seed round 2021. We raised the A uh, a year later in 2022, fall 2022. What became clear, and it's certainly what we're working on now in, you know, in this economic environment is thinking much more about um, our unit, our unit economics, um, and also thinking, of, well, never mind, you know, we, we'd be for sure be thinking about unit economics, no matter what. I think we're thinking a lot more about margin and how we can chart a path to profitability much faster than we might potentially otherwise have, have had to thought, uh, think it through. I think for us to get to an effective series B, we're going to want to tell a story to investors, not only about our execution and how quickly we've stood up this, you know, really novel production technology and a novel agriculture supply chain. Both of those things are, are heavy lifts and require really awesome execution. Um, but also that we have a, a pipeline of, of business and traction that, um, is, uh, you know, has some margin favorability in it, right? Or like, it's really clear that, you know, if there's pricing pressure that we have a strategy to, to address it. Um, and so I think the, 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 the economic landscape that, you know, where we're operating today, I, I suspect venture-backed companies are, are thinking about that earlier in their trajectory than they might otherwise, you know, at least not given quite as much thought as they otherwise at this point. And we are definitely giving it a ton of thought, right? You know, while you were talking about margins, I had this perhaps off-the-wall idea. So many years ago, I interviewed Mike Zelkind from 80 Acres Farms, vertical farming company. And during the conversation, we were kind of looking out into the future and strategizing. And one of the things we thought of, or he thought of, maybe I don't remember, but is putting a vertical farm, for example, next to a grocery store. So, you know, the plants grow year-round and transportation cost is eliminated. You can just move the herbs and vegetables directly from the farm to the grocery store. And as I was looking at your website and looking at your equipment, you talked about the mill earlier, and you mentioned, you know, the printing essentially of these um, two by fours and, you know, potentially later four by eights. I was wondering if in the plans, there is something along the lines of putting a manufacturing facility near a, I'm going to call it a distribution center, like for a Home Depot. So you cut down on the carrying cost of the material and you're able to print on demand. The technology that we're building enables that type of opportunity. And what I would say is that, you know, we're currently talking to a, a number of, of companies that could see themselves really loving that value proposition, right? We're talking to companies that have distribution centers, exactly the use case you just talked about, Raj, where they're like, wow, it'd be really interesting if you could put, you know, a number of these lines right next door to our distribution, distribution center uh, and really shrink that supply chain. 
um, it's something that we're excited about. And, you know, because it also has implications for residential, uh, residential home builders, you could put, uh, you, you could put our production lines next to a, a residential development of two, three, 400 homes. And we can, it is essentially, it's not quite printing, but it is like we are building a, an automated continuous production capability. So there are panels coming off one end of it, you know, every minute or so, um, where we could take out, so where we could take out that cost. Because for us, if you think about it, taking out cost is also taking out carbon, right? And, and we fundamentally exist as a company. The reason why we all show up every day uh, is to take carbon out of the atmosphere and lock it away, and in this case, in the built environment. And we don't want to give any of that carbon back through diesel trucks moving our panels to a job site or our panels to a distribution center. We don't want to give any of that carbon back. We work hard enough to take it out. And so we definitely think about optimizing at every step of that supply chain um, or the whole, you know, the, the whole entire value chain. So is your production facility going to be modular then? The, the, the production facility itself is modular, right? So if you envision what our factory looks like, you know, I described to you a, a mill or a factory for tree-based engineered uh, wood materials like a plywood or in whole building, it's called OSB, oriented strand board. You know, that's the panel they nail to the two by fours or even, you know, engineered two by fours, right? These are huge, huge factories, typically with one massively long assembly line. In our instance, if you were to envision our factory, think about an empty Amazon warehouse and you have a production line that's say, you know, roughly four feet wide, 140 feet long. Next to it, in parallel, you have another production line. And then next to that in parallel, you have another production line spanning this warehouse, you know, potentially up to 50 to 100 lines, right? That gets to, to mill, like, so I keep saying mill, but like the scale that this, you know, that this industry operates, oper- yeah, that the scale this industry operates. One line can be making these structural panels that you use to build a house. The line right next to it, using the same production technology, can be tuned to make something thicker so you can make subflooring, you know, so you can make walls, roofs, and subflooring for the house, or you could even go thicker to something about an inch and a half thick. And then when it gets cut, you have engineered lumber, you have two by fours, right? So now you can have the frame, you can have the entire frame of a house. You can actually have the sticks or the studs. You can have the panels that get nailed to them, all being made in a very, very small manufacturing you know, footprint. Right next to that, we can also get into the types of materials that are being used to make tall structures out of wood, you know, increasingly, whether it's cross laminated timber or mass timber, which many, many people, uh, you know, from architects to design firms to construction engineering firms are, are super excited about. We can make that too. We can just make it way more efficiently from a carbon perspective and from a material perspective than you simply can with trees. Um, and but all of that is the way we lay out our factories, and all of that is the opportunity for us to expand the types of into the types of products that we can offer to end customers, and that's what just excites us so much about where we're going as a company. That's why we say we are building carbon negative materials for every new home and every new building on Earth, because that's the that's the opportunity we see, and that's the change that we feel is necessary at a civilization civilizational scale if we are credibly going to address climate change uh, over the next 20, 30, 40, 50 years. And well, speaking of beyond, let's fast forward 10 years from now. It's 2033. 20, let's say Wall Street Journal, Forbes, Fast Company, pick your publication, were to write a 
headline and perhaps even a short paragraph about Planted, what would you like that to read? What I would like it to read is Planted gets to a billion board feet, proves to industry that mass biomass is the way to go from now until forever, right? That we have changed the economic, we have shown that our economics outcompete trees and therefore the industry needs to change because the only way we are going to solve climate change is if we move away from trees as the input for, um, for home building um, and, and move away from steel and concrete. And so now this is actually becoming a very long paragraph, but that generally speaking is what I would like that, that short article or, or paragraph to, to I think it's great. On. I'm imagining a banner in your office that says 1 billion board feet. That's it. That, that's right. That's right. That's so, where we're going. Last question, and you know, you've had a lot of experience in companies under your belt, you've taken quite a scenic route, you stayed on track with the environmental piece. But if you could share some advice, words of wisdom, this could be personal or professional, what would you like to share? Well, I suppose I would say to someone who's listening who is working on forging their career around sustainability or wants to dedicate themselves to a career solving climate change, because um, that's that's what I think is, to me, is the most interesting to work on. But, but, but to do that, the opportunities are not, um, you know, they're, they're growing, but they're, they're not everywhere. And so what I mean by that is, if you want to pursue this type of career, and this has served me well, take any opportunity that comes your way that you think would be interesting to do, whether you know how to do it or not. You know, I didn't know how to host a radio show. I certainly didn't know how to host a a TV show, um, you know, working for Amazon was a, was a pretty big step to go lead a business there. But just I would take the opportunities that came be, and I would move across country or I would move wherever that job was to go after that opportunity. And I think that's what's really called for, for, you know, for people who really want to chart this path for themselves and believe that this is the type of work they, they, they want to do. I was talking recently to a guy in, I want to say North Dakota, um, who is working for a big construction, uh, one of the biggest construction companies in, in the world. And he moved to North Dakota because that's where the job was within this particular construction company to, you know, his title was essentially, um, or sorry, his job description was sourcing carbon negative material. He's like, yeah, I'm living here because this is where, this is where I get to do this every single day. Wow. And that's my advice to people, like take risks, move, leap, do things you don't know how to do, um, but that will serve you well, uh, you know, if you want to have this kind of career. Well, Josh, I appreciate the advice. Thank you so much for your time today. Lucy, if you're listening, thank you for not hitting on Josh, and I look forward to catching up with you again soon. Thank you so much, Roz. It, uh, it was really a pleasure uh, speaking with you today. Thank you. Thank you for listening. If you like our show, please give us a rating and review on iTunes. And you can show your support by sharing our show with a friend or reach out to us on social media where you'll find us under our Nexus PMG handle. If there's a subject or topic you'd like to hear about, send me an email, btu at nexuspmg.com or contact me via our website, nexuspmg.com. And while you're there, you can sign up for our monthly newsletter where we share what we're reading and thinking about in the clean tech green tech sectors. Bigger Than Us is a Nexus PMG production.